me tell you what I'm up to. Um, I'm trying to uh, outline uh, what it means to live out a life of grace. And, and for the Christian, what does it mean to flesh out um, a, a life of grace? And in that pursuit, there have been two uh, errors, two mistakes that have been made on both ends of the spectrum. One is, as you have heard me say, legalism. The other is antinomianism. And so we, uh, what we've been doing, we're trying to examine both ends of those spectrum uh, of the spectrum, and then we're going to come back and um, uh, hopefully define clearly what it means to live out a life of grace. But that'll be down the line somewhere. But this is about about as far as we've come. We have said that the first error or the first reaction. Um, uh, to a life of grace is to live it out pharisaically, legalistically, or uh, the error is, of course, legalism. And so we've begun to examine pharisaism. You can use legalism if you like. Maybe it's easier to spell. Pharisaism. And uh, what I've done thus far is tell you that the first characteristic, uh, the first characteristic of a pharisaic lifestyle is self-glory. And uh, that's, and remember last, or I went with you last week, I was in Bermuda, um, but um, the, the first characteristic of a, of a legalist is his desire to be thought of as something that perhaps he, uh, in truth, is not. There is an emphasis on uh, not being right, but looking right. Uh, not um, what, is, what is right, but what would appear to be right, particularly for my group. How can I um, uh, appear to be righteous? It's a showy. It's man on display. Um, what do you think? What do you think the people will think if we do that? That, that kind of um, um, expression or that kind of concern comes out of the life of the Pharisee, because his first um, uh, concern or his first uh, mistake is one of self-glory. Um, it is, in essence, lazy. Oh, it is the essence of hypocrisy. Uh, it's a life lived hoping to be thought of as being one thing when, in fact, uh, you're not that. You're not that at all. Um, if I could illustrate, um, it, it's not wrong to be against something that you yourself do. For instance, overeat, of which several of us are guilty. What is reprehensible, ladies and gentlemen, is to condemn my brother for overeating while I overeat. Uh, I can be opposed to something that I'm guilty of, knowing that it's wrong. But then to go on to condemn other people because I, uh, for doing something that I myself am doing, that, ladies and gentlemen, is a, a spirit of a Pharisee. Now, um, uh, wh what I want to do tonight is um, open up a second characteristic of Phariseeism. And that's why I put this up here, so you can at least think get some kind of idea about what I'm, uh, a blueprint of what I'm doing. The second major flaw in legalism or Pharisaism is that it misdefines godliness. Legalism misdefines godliness. Suppose you've got your Bibles with you. If you do, open them with me to Mark chapter 7. And some of you recall uh, about four, three years ago, uh, this was the uh, subject of a series, this, this passage, and we called it Corban. But let me just read to you out of Mark chapter 7, um, verse 8, uh, 
um, and verse 13. Take a look at those texts. Mark 7, 8. Jesus is condemning the hypocrites and says, in verse 8, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. Um, look at verse 9. Uh, he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. Look at verse 13 in the same paragraph. Um, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition. Now, I don't know whether you understand that. I, I think you probably do. But what I'm suggesting is what happens in the world of the Pharisee, what happens in the world of the legalist, is that he uh, substitutes a new definition for godly living. He creates his own definition and substitutes it for the real thing. And very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, the substitute is something that is always doable. Um, his tradition is something that he, completely unaided by the Holy Spirit, can accomplish in his flesh. And so what I mean by misdefining godliness is what the Pharisee does <clears throat> is that he comes up with a whole other um, um, description of what it means to be a godly man, substitutes that for the real thing, and then goes his way thinking that he is accomplishing great godliness, when in fact, he is not. He is not living up to the commandments of God. He's living up to this new code that he himself has adopted, established and adopted. It's called here in Mark 7, Traditions of Men. Um, I've told this story before, but it, it, it so well illustrates my point. I hope you've forgotten it. Years ago, when we first moved to Memphis, um, we got here in March, and so we couldn't get our girls in the school where we wanted to get them because we couldn't afford it. And so we put them um, at Germantown Elementary. And so Gracie and Megan had started school. Emily hadn't started school, but Gracie was in the fourth grade at Germantown Elementary. We lived right off of Hacks Cross, and so it was real close. And, um, and it, was, it was hard making that adjustment from one school. But anyway, on one night, she came home from school. And, uh, you know, of course, Daddy and Mommy are just dying to know that she's doing well in this new environment in which she finds herself. And uh, so she is just babbling on about all the little folks that she's meeting there at the school. And she says that she has met the, um, the most Christian girl in her class. And that's where she, she's the most Christian girl in the class. And so, of course, I'm interested to find out, uh, you know, why uh, she's the little girl is the most Christian girl in the class. And so I said, well, well, Gracie, um, how did you determine that? And she said, well, uh, Daddy, her parents don't allow her to read Hardy Boy books. How about that? I mean, uh, that, that, should, that should do it. And then, if that weren't enough, when all the kids brought their Sony Walkman to school, this child was only allowed to listen to Christian music on her Sony Walkman. And then, completely unprompted by me, completely apart from any inquisition that I might have made, she adds this. She says, but you know what, Daddy? When she doesn't get her way, she's the meanest and the poutiest girl I've ever seen. 
Now, do you see what this child has done, or somehow has gotten, it at least illustrates what I'm trying to say. Here we have established a new definition of godliness. It is, do not read Hardy Boy books, and only listen to Christian music. Now, if you want to be an absolute witch, oh, that's fine. But just don't read those Hardy Boy books, and you've got to listen to Christian music. Legalism substitutes a whole new definition of what godliness is. And, and the, the unique thing about this definition it is, that, is that it is eminently doable. It can be accomplished in the flesh without any assistance whatsoever from God the Holy Spirit. He is not needed because I've got a new definition of what it means to be godly, and I can do that. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, if, if godliness only means staying away from Hardy Boy books, I'm one godly fellow. And um, if I have to listen to Christian music, I can do that in a heartbeat. Because I don't listen to any music to speak of. But tell me this, ladies and gentlemen. What do you think, what do you think is more difficult? To stay out of an R-rated movie or to love your neighbor? If godliness is simply staying away from R-rated movies, if that's all it means, I can do that in a, in a flash. But if godliness means loving my neighbor, that's going to require, that's going to require some capability that comes from on high. But what the Pharisee does is that he comes up with a code, and they vary from group to group, ladies and gentlemen. The code varies from group to group. And the code then becomes the the the, the the criteria by which godliness is measured among my, my circle of influence. Oh, do you memorize verses? Now, gang, I'm not against memorizing verses. Surely you, you know that. I'm not even against staying away from R-rated movies. I think if you go see some movie where people are walking around naked, I think you're stupid. But I just want you to know that doesn't make you godly. Staying away from the already movies. And if you conclude that someone who does see already movies is not godly because he sees already movies, I say to you, you have exercised a trait of Pharisaism. One of my greatest heroes in the, in, in, the, in the Christian circles today is a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul. And he can tell you about every movie that's ever been on the screen, including the already ones. They're not godly? Well, if you have a anything other than a biblical definition, you might not be. One of the great offenses that I see in the evangelical community, ladies and gentlemen, is what we call, my wife and I, code living. Somebody gets the privilege of establishing the code. I don't know who it is, but somebody gets the privilege and they establish the code. Then the rest of us have to eagerly conform our lives to that code. And if you do, you know, you know I can mention so many things, and I, but I, I will offend a different group of people if I, if, you know, um, let me just, let me just take a few and, and I, I, I'm not, they're not intended to be offensive, ladies and gentlemen. 
Um, but they're just things that I've seen people say. Sorry, Gail. Precept. Is there anything wrong with K. Arthur's precept Bible study? Not a thing. It's a wonderful thing, but if you're not in it, then uh, you're not godly. Um, quiet time. Do you have a daily quiet time? Is there anything wrong with having a daily quiet time? No. It's a wonderful thing. But ladies and gentlemen, you cannot establish it as a part of your code for measuring godliness. Listen to this text. This is one of the texts that I want to write a book about one of these days. It's in Luke chapter 11, verse 42. And it says, You tithe the mint and the cumin, and you ignore the weightier matters of the law. You know what this little girl was doing that Gracie said is the most Christian girl in her class? She was tithing mint and cumin. Maybe she should stay away from hardy boy books. Maybe she shouldn't listen to anything but Christian music. But ignoring the weightier matters of the law. Because this definition of godliness is doable in the flesh. The real one is not. The real issues of godly living, ladies and gentlemen, unless in, assisted by, empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit, will never be accomplished. But this one will be. And, and very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, this one's easy. It's easy compared to the real thing. But so the Pharisee decides that if I can do this, and you know, if I can, in seminary, ladies and gentlemen, seminary was w one of the worst places ever. I'm telling you, there were the wives that made their own food. You know, they would go get carrots and, you know, grind them all up, and all their children were drinking was carrot juice. <laughs> made from, you know, Mother Nature over here. And um, carrot, I mean, uh, breastfeeding. I'm telling you, I got so tired of women coming to chapel and breastfeeding their babies in chapel. But it was a mark. It was a mark of... Now, by the way, am I opposed to either one of those things? No. But when they become criteria by which we measure other people, well, you know, she doesn't make her own food. Um, I mean, guys, you can plug in your own issue. There's a thousand of them. There's a thousand of them. I'm telling you this. And, and you know, my wife, I've never been paid huge amounts of money, but I've always been paid enough so that my wife didn't have to work. And I'm for that. It's a part of my value system. But in some Christian communities, if women work, why? They're considered absolute heretics. Well, you know, that's not necessarily so. Did you know that? But that's just another criterion that is used to form the code. The code. You know, guys, I know that this offends you. I, I have wanted to do this on so many occasions. I'm, 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 I'm not man enough. Because um, I, I, I like my job, you know. Um, but I have long, I mean, I've had this idea for years. Bob Whittle, I mean, I've, I've said this. I've, I've, I've wanted, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, a, I'm tempted, Russ Garner, to tell him what you did to me one day. I'm going to tell him. Okay, okay. But here's what I want to do. I want to walk out one Sunday morning and get behind the pulpit with a glass of red liquid. You know, kind of swirl it around and, and then sip it. 
right in front of you and then say, it's cranberry juice. Let me ask you this. Has your opinion of me just changed because of that information that you just got? If it did, you're a Pharisee. I gotta tell you what Russ Garner did to me one day. Russ Garner asked me after lunch. And um, he, he did this on purpose, the twit. Um, <laughs> we go to um, um, Grady's. Grady's. I was thinking about to say Applebee's. I know. Grady's. And he's there waiting on me. And there at the table, before I ever get there, is this long, one of those cunnel-shaped, uh, cunnel-shaped uh, glasses, you know, what do they call them? Uh, what? Nah, not carafe. A Pilsner? Is that what it's called? It's, a, it's a, one of those long glass, you know, and it's big up at the top and it shapes down. And there's this bubbly, licking yellow thing with foam on it <laughs> sitting at the desk. And uh, sitting, in the, sitting at the, the booth. So I come in and never said a word about it. Never said a word. Um, wasn't about to make that an issue. We went through our whole lunch, the entire lunch, the check is paid, and we're about to walk out, and Russ looks at me and says, it was O'Doul's. <laughs> he wanted to see what I was going to do, you know? Does, does, does my opinion of him, or, or your opinion of me, is it centered upon what I drink? Well, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, you've missed it. That's a misdefinition. By the way, I'm not trying to encourage any consumption of alcoholic beverages here. I'm just telling you, <coughs> that's a misdefinition of godliness. It's tithing mint and cumin and ignoring the waiter matters of the law. Oh, he couldn't be that holy because he drinks a glass of wine. But he loves the poor. He's committed to people in need. And I'm not saying those things are true to me, but does that make any difference? Or do you just want to tie the mint in the coming and ignore the weightier matters of the law and conclude all the while that you're a godly man or woman while you ignore the weightier matters of the law? Ladies and gentlemen, it's a substitute definition of godliness. And I'm telling you, we like it because we can do it in the flesh. What we can't pull off in the flesh is the real thing. Godliness is so much simpler this way, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, don't, I don't blame people for liking it. The, the problem is, not, not infrequently, men base their understandings and their estimates of their own selves based on this. And they pay an eternal price for it. Thinking all is well with their souls because they avoided wine and R-rated movies and go to hell thinking that that's what... And I'll tell you this, ladies and gentlemen. You go talk to some non-Christians and see what they, what they have concluded that our religion is all about. What do they think? They think we're just people who don't go to R-rated movies and we don't run around our wives and I hope we don't run around our wives. And um, and we don't drink beer and we don't um, and we don't party and you know that's the way they understand us and I'm telling you they got that impression because we gave it to them we told them that that's what it was I mean that's the impression they got by watching us 
Um, I, I got another story to tell, but I, I, I'm not sure I can get away with it. I'm not sure y'all are man enough to listen to it. I've told the story before, and I'm, I'm telling you, my wife just cringes every time. All right. I love, I love the flamboyant. <laughs> that was a good one, Russ. That was a good one. Really. <clears throat> um, you've heard this story before, and I, I, I tell you what, I'm going to change the word, because the word I'm going to use is a piece of profanity, but it's not as bad as the other piece of profanity that was really used. This is a man who stood in front of a group of kids at a uh, uh, Christian conference, and he gets behind the podium, and he says, um, he says, uh, yesterday, 10,000 people in Africa died without Christ and went to hell. And some of you don't give a damn. And what's even worse is that some of you are more concerned that I said damn than 10,000 people died of a Christless death. He didn't say damn. He said something worse. But do you get that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you see the point? Because it's a misdefinition of godliness. We tied the mitten to coming. Oh, he said, damn. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, we had a man leave this church because I read something with D-A-M-N in the story. And I prefaced it by saying, I didn't say this. I don't use this language. It's in there. It's not me. And he came up to me saying, if I'd have brought my child in here and he'd have heard the preacher say that. And I think, buddy, you missed it. And I think so much of it is because he had been reared in an environment that misdefined what it meant to be godly. Gang, um, I want you to see a text with me. And we're almost finished for the night. Turn, if you can find Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 22-23. Let me read that. Colossians 2, beginning at verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I read someplace where there was a Christian school, a Christian college that advertised itself in Christian magazines with this piece of pride. We are, we are located a hundred miles from any known sin. <laughs> you missed that, Bobby? <laughs> 
part of their trying to get you to come to their college was advertising in the Bible, as one of the bylines, by saying, we are located a hundred miles from any known sin. That is, what, I mean, they're, they're not close to a casino, they're not close to, you know, a, a movie house, I guess. And I want to say, what? You know, not only have you misdefined godliness, you've misdefined sin. And so what is sin now? Stay away from this. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I pick on casinos all the time. I don't think you should go down there. I, I think it's a sad commentary on the Christian church that that's our entertainment. That we got to go do that and be entertained. I think that's awful, but I'm telling you. It's not something that I can use to conclude, oh, you went to the casino. Ah, you must not be very spiritual. Um, I had to do one other thing, and I think I got time. But we're going to have to go fast. Because let me, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, just trying to give you some kind of idea um, how ugly this thing can get. We, uh, we Christians lament the way that cults turn their adherents into mindless robots. And so we send people in to drag our kids out, you know, because they've gotten into this. We, we, we groan over the fact that the cults have used such mind-numbing techniques so that our children uh, no longer think they're just mindless robots. But I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that, um, that evangelicals have some similar methods. We subtly encourage people to, to, to put their minds in neutral and let the minister tell you how you're supposed to think. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how many of you have ever taken my, um, my systematic theology class. I think some of you are downright frightened to take it. I think you're scared of it. And I'm telling you that's tragic because anybody in this room who's ever taken it knows that I say it again and again and again. My goal is not to get you to agree with me. My goal is to challenge you to think. I want to read a text. Turn if you can find this one. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. This is a story that is a really important uh, chapter in the Bible, Numbers 11, 29. But, um, you know, um, oh, it was, it, something happened where um, there were, it, it, read the story tonight, but uh, let me read verse 28. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said, <coughs> well, I'm going to have to go on <coughs> and go to 26. I'm sorry. But two men had remained in the camp. Uh, the name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other, Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Look at verse 29. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets. 
and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. And Moses returned to the camp. I say, ladies and gentlemen, there are many evangelical pastors who would not want that. Because ultimately, if I can tell you how you're supposed to think, then I'm in charge. And to encourage you to think is to lose control of you. I can't prove this, ladies and gentlemen. I, I, I can only say this. In terms of the Pharisees' motive for misdefining godliness, I can't prove this. But it seems to me that the ultimate motive is control. Because if I can tell you what gets you in and what keeps you out, then number one, I can write myself in. And I can keep all you uh, riffraff out. But you see, someone who has tasted of grace, they don't care who else gets grace. But somebody who has earned it and gotten his grace because he was good, and they want to make sure that nobody gets it too easy. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, when grace is preached properly, some Pharisee will rise up and say, you're making it too easy. Father, I pray that you will open the eyes and the ears of your people and might we walk as free people, people set free by the grand and glorious work of Jesus Christ the Lord. Might no one, including this preacher, ever bring people into bondage over again, all over again. It is for freedom that we have been made free. Might your people learn to relish that thought. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.